is important to make new friends in court, is it not? You're so beautiful. Stop it, I, you mock me. If I were a man, I would ravish you. <laughs> you have become close to Abigail. She is a viper. You're jealous. You must send Abigail away. I do not want to. Let's shoot something. <gasps> Sometimes it is hard to remember whether you have loaded the pellet or not. I must take control of my circumstance. Throw! I'm on my side. Always. Favor is a breeze that shifts direction all the time. Then, in an instant, you're back sleeping with a bunch of scabrous whores. As it turns out, I am capable of much unpleasantness. Did you just look at me? Look at me! How dare you! Close your eyes! I could not just stand by and let you destroy me. <laughs> Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special on The Favorite, the new film from Greek director Yorgos Lanthimos. Here to talk with me about The Favorite, talking to us from Slate Studios in Washington, D.C., is Alexandra Petri, a columnist for The Washington Post and a first-time spoiler special helpmate. Hey, Alexandra, thanks for coming on. Hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm really thrilled to talk about this movie with you. I'm such a fan of your column, and I did not know you were a movie person who would be interested in, in coming in to talk movies. Do you follow movies, new movies? I have to caveat this by I, I love new movies, but I also have very bad and very strong taste in movies. So, like, I saw Venom in theaters twice. Like, that's sort of the grain of salt with which all of my opinions <laughs> should be taken. Because the first time I'm like, oh, I kind of, you know... I expected it to be really bad, and it was only kind of bad. Maybe it's a good movie. I should see it again. And then I saw it again, and it turned out it was not really a good movie. But I'm glad that I had those experiences. I haven't so, even seen Venom once, so consider the second time you were seeing it for me. On average, yeah, we've seen it a time. A time apiece. And and bad taste in movies is great, because that way, if you've come out identifying yourself up front with someone with bad taste, then I can just dismiss your opinions on the favorite. But before <laughs> we start, I'm very curious just to do, you know, a, a, a back and forth on did you like it or not? Like, on the most simple level, would you send a friend to this movie? Oh, yeah, I really liked it. I enjoyed both sort of the sort of 18th century artistic framing of it, and also just any opportunity to watch Rachel Weiss be mean to people is worth paying $14 or whatever your movie costs wherever you go. Yeah, for this, the pure catty banter factor, this movie rates very, very high. But I think it sounds like you liked it more than I did. I mean, I would say that my review of this movie is generally negative, even though almost all the elements of it are admiring. I, I rave about the performances, the costume design, the production design. Almost everything about it is kind of gorgeously set out and, and very wittily presented. But there's something about the whole of it that struck me as show-offy and in love with itself. And I wonder if you sense that at all. Yeah, a little bit. I feel like I was annoyed by the sort of the chapter headings where it's like, this isn't a textbook. Why are you telling me phrases and like key terms to look for in upcoming scenes? And yet every so often it would just go black and it would tell you phrases and key terms that would be prominently featured in the next scene of the film, which I thought was a little precious. But it was good because it was an aid to reading. And you thought, ah, I got to pay attention because they're going to talk about liking items and taking them. 
And the, well, and the script is very, I wouldn't call it literary exactly because it's extremely raunchy and sort of modern. It's not a period piece kind of script, but it is very wordy. It's, it's, it's full of verbal play and, um, you know, kind of unexpected language choices, including anachronisms. Like you'll have these 18th century royal characters saying, okay, they said at one point, which sent my mind racing to what's the etymology of okay again? I'm pretty yeah, sure no, that's not like Martin Van Buren. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, oh, right. You're the person as the American history knower who would know where OK does come from. But did you notice those anachronisms throughout the movie? It's funny because my friend and I, when we got out of it, we were arguing, like, was the language anachronistic? Because we're like, maybe they just said uh, the C word a lot more in the 18th century. And we're like, well, we can agree that they definitely did. However, uh, still some of the phrases within that were, like, strikingly not of the time period. But they were so raunchy in ways that are very, like modern feeling but i was like maybe i just wasn't paying attention to the specific language used but yeah. no i think the anachronisms are deliberate and they're part of you know destabilizing you which is also why there are so many show-offy directorial tricks in this movie the most annoying of them to me being fisheye the omnipresent <laughs> use of the fisheye lens which is you know of course the lens that makes everything look like it's distorted around a kind of glass globe and to me really takes you out of the story do you have any theory as to why lanthimos kept throwing fisheye shots in there I had no theory because I, I read something else where someone was saying, oh, well, like, and, and it's the, the comical fisheye lens that really shows you how distorted these people are. And I'm like, well, that I thought the movie was sort of doing that. I don't think you need to have the fisheye. And suddenly we realize, oh, my gosh, these characters are being satirized. I would not have gotten that if you hadn't used that one distinctive shot. So I other than that, it was like, it's, I guess, kind of fun if you have a camera in an old house and you get to just roll it around and see what the hallway looks like. but. As far as achieving anything additional to what the movie would have achieved without it, I was not like, oh, yeah, that that fish, I really pushed me over the edge. I was like, this is what we were missing up until that really long fisheye rolling sequence. Yeah, to me, it just every single time I just thought there is a director making this at the moment that you see that shot. I mean, I can understand the various aesthetic rationales for it. You could say the people are in a fishbowl, right? The court, the world of the palace court is is like a fishbowl. You could say that, you know, he's just trying to get, as you say, a perspective on these huge spaces of these old estates that he's filming on. But for whatever reason, it just it was one of those movies where I wanted to take the directing of the capital D and just peel it off the movie and just have what was underneath, which was three really great female performances, which we should get to now, and a really good script. So let's start. Talk, let's get into the movie proper and uh, and what actually happens in the setup. We begin in the early 18th century in the court of Queen Anne, who's I guess you could say is the the main character of the movie. I mean, there's really a triumvirate of women that are all three of the main characters, but Queen Anne, played by Olivia Coleman, is is pretty much the center. Um, and she's triangulated by these two other women, Rachel Weiss, who, as you say, is her very catty advisor, Sarah. I don't know if her last name is Marlborough, but she's married to Lord, Sarah Lord Churchill. Marlborough. Sarah yeah. Churchill. Okay. The, the name, the whole nomenclature is very confusing in the English court. Um, but, but she is married to Lord Marlborough, who's one of the advisors of the Queen. And she is also a close advisor of the Queen, who it becomes obvious from the very early scenes is pulling all the strings behind the scenes and is involved in various machinations to get power for her husband and for the things that she wants, the policy choices that she wants, including pursuing a war with France. Um, and then, well, since I've been talking for so long, why don't you describe who Emma Stone is, the third leg of the of the triangle? 
Yeah, no, Emma Stone is Abigail Masham, I think is her name. I'm not sure her, her last name is prominent. Well, she becomes well, after Emma. she marries well, Masham. spoiler, yeah, spoiler. She marries a man named Masham. So Abigail, some name that isn't Masham, who is a hard-on-her-luck uh she was raised aristocratically, but then her father gambled her away to what she describes as like a fat German with a thin prick. And now she's really on hard times and has been forced to work as a like just servant. In a scullery the, maid, basically, right? In the grounds of this castle. Yeah, so she's sculling away in the scullery. Now, now, like, what is the scullery maid? So, yeah, she's using lye on the floors. She's doing all these things. But she's immediately scheming to get back into her former state and maybe even catapult herself beyond that. So while she starts out seeming sort of nice and wide-eyed and has that classic Emma Stone thing going on, pretty soon you notice that she's actually out for bear. And we haven't even established yet that this triangle is also a love triangle and a sex triangle, right? It's established pretty early on that one of the things that Sarah does, both to curry favor from the queen and also apparently from some real affection for the queen, is that she sexually services her, basically, that she is at her beck and call for, you know, any kind of encounter that the queen is up for. And, uh, And Abigail susses that out very quickly and decides that she's going to use her physical charms and beauty as well to ascend in the opinion of the queen. Yeah, no, she's conveniently in a library, like looking at books because she's a learned young lass. And then suddenly she notices that in the same room there's this uh, encounter going on. And so then Emma Stone, I, I enjoy sort of the 18th century efforts at seduction, which are like, oh, I just happen to be waiting here for you. And now I will fling myself into the bed. And oops, my clothes are also gone, which, you know, that's very t- strategic and direct. And uh, so, yeah, it's remarkably transactional on her end but it it does feel sort of warmer and like oh they've been friends for decades and they have these sort of cute formal little names for one another like mrs morley and mrs i forget i feel like sarah's name isn't mrs mrs morley's the queen and sarah has some other name that isn't mrs churchill but i don't remember what it is um, and it is established that they've been friends since childhood, right? And that the queen sort of depends on Sarah. The queen, we should we should say, is I don't know how you would describe the character of the queen, but she's this strange combination of savvy and weak minded. I mean, she appears to not really have any idea what's going on in the court or what's going on in the larger politics of the nation. And yet she has a hand in everything that happens. She insists on sort of the final decision at all times. She she never cedes the power to anyone else, but she also never seems to fully grasp what's happening. And that is also partly because she's in declining health, as we see over the course of the movie. She has gout and she's kind of, I don't know what all she has, but she's sort of bloated and pale and falling apart as the as the movie goes on. You know, she becomes sort of increasingly grotesque and at one point half of her face stops working. And I think and you can really see the acting going on. But yeah, because she never really seems to take any interest in the business of government. It's amazing for someone who people spend so much time trying to manipulate her. She doesn't really seem to have any core basis for what decisions she's making other than who happens to be pushing for them at any given time and whether or not she feels favorably disposed towards that person, which is certainly an interesting a sort of ambiguous picture of female power, even as much as the whole uh, show is about female power. Yeah, I mean, that's a big question about this movie in a way is like, could you call it a kind of feminist parable or or not? I mean, it it does seem to 
of course, it is about three women who have a great deal of political power and are bargaining it and sharing it and fighting to get it from each other. But ultimately, they are all in the service of a state that's run by men. For example, there's scene after scene that's in, I don't know what you'd call it exactly, but sort of the parliament of its day, like the hall in the in the palace where the the lords come to meet the queen and, you know, the, the Tories who are led by a character played by Nicholas Holt. What's, what's that character's name? Harley. Lord oh, yeah, Harley. Harley. Um, they're fighting with the Queen about this war that's going on with France, which I should mention we never see a single scene of or really learn much about. It's it's completely an abstraction, which is obviously a deliberate, I think, commentary on how removed the court is from actual war, suffering, you know, everyday political life. But there's this constant battle going on between the Tories and the Queen about whether or not this war should continue. Yeah, it's interesting how remote it is from Parliament. I had there was something that I had and I've forgotten what it is now. But I think so. My my dad is a huge. He's obsessed with the Duke of Marlborough. Like weirdly, like he's gone to the gift shop at the like Blenheim Palace and bought all of the books in the gift shop. And he's always like, you know, this man is the first who ever rose from being a commoner to more powerful in the kingdom than the queen. And just all kinds of fun Duke of Marlborough facts. And so I sort of left the movie both wanting to recommend it to him and being like, I'm not certain that you will enjoy all of the like. It, it turns out the Duke of Marlborough is not as prominently featured in this movie as maybe you would have hoped. And uh, everyone's having sex. Uh, I would but, love for your dad to see it. You have to send him to it, if only just to get the, uh, the the response from somebody who knows the history well, because I'm very curious whether it is actually true that his wife was... It is certainly true that um, she was rumored to be lovers with the queen. In fact, I think those letters really exist, the letters that come along late in the movie, and they're discussing whether to burn them or not. I think there are some some letters that describe that relationship between them. But as to how that related to the husband, we really don't know because all the men in this movie, with the slight exception of the the Nicholas Holt character, Harley, are distant and barely seen. It really is a world where these three women and the Queen's rabbits are essentially yeah. the characters that we're meant to care about. Do you want to talk about the Queen's rabbits? Oh, the Queen's rabbits. Well, I actually did remember the thing that I was going to say, which is I was the one thing that really bugged me about the movie and has bugged me more the more I think about it was the fact that Emma Stone had to keep delivering like feminist catchphrases throughout the film, which like there's one point when she's like, you wouldn't interrupt a man. And it's like, it's the 18th century in England, miss. Of course you'd interrupt a man. Like you, of course, A, like the premise that you'd interrupt a woman rather than a man is just a correct premise. And then so it, it she, like she ha- was doing all these monologues where she would say empowering things and nobody else was doing monologues where they were like, yeah, but remember, like, you got to seize your power. And <laughs> I felt sort of bad for her because, like, all of the acting acting was great during the normal parts, but then she would have to go off and, like, deliver a long monologue while, uh, you know, pleasuring her new spouse. And <laughs> I like how, like, prudish and Victorian I am. I'm like, well, yes, and of course, there was sex there, <laughs> um, which wait, one wait. frowns on. But speaking of pleasuring her new spouse, we need to get to that. So how does she oh, yeah. go from becoming Abigail, whoever she is, to Abigail Masham? And this is, even though the character himself is kind of a cipher, this relationship is important in her ascent. Yeah, the queen marries her off in a private ceremony, which is sort of a pivotal point in the movie, but also is historically a thing that did happen. And so now she's restored to a title and is respectable again, and is married to Taylor Swift's latest fling, Joe Alwyn. That's right. Which he was, he was I, th- I would imagine that he was cast in the role before he took up the new blank space in Taylor's notebook. <laughs> but um, but it, it ends up being a perfect little rhyme with everyday life, which is kind of delicious, especially because there's something a little Swiftian about this ruthless blonde um, that Emma Stone plays. There, there was also 
I feel like, can we talk about the, I, I saw in your review, you mentioned the nude man with the wig who was getting pelted with pomegranates. Can we talk about the, the nude man in the wig who was pelted with pomegranates? What was his function? But wait, we haven't talked about the rabbits yet. And the rabbits are extremely important, especially if we're spoiling, since the last thing we see on screen in the movie is a lap dissolve between Emma Stone's face and a whole bunch of little nibbling rabbits. Can you tell us what the rabbits are doing in this movie? Ah, uh, yes. Well, the rabbits, they symbolize the lost children of the queen. But also, I, I can't tell if historically she did this. It's, it seems like the they sort of hit the main historical points correctly, where she has one rabbit for each of her dead children. And so of which Emma's, there are 17 incredibly which, and that is true as well. Yeah. I think yeah, that so, counts that counts miscarriages. It's all the children that she at one point conceived in her life, some of whom were born and some not. Which is a lot of rabbits. And they turn out to be the key to her heart. And so Emma when Emma Stone is first sneaking in there and gaining her confidence, it's by playing with the rabbits and saying, oh, and making much of them. Whereas you, we see uh, Sarah Churchill saying, I think those rabbits are morbid. I think it's creepy that you have them, which uh, later we see Emma Stone's character when we're like, has she made the face heel turn? And she literally crushes a bunny. And so you think, OK, well, that's it's it's clear <laughs> now who she is. But just to be so our listeners are getting true spoilers, I'm actually going to unspoil that to a certain degree she doesn't okay. crush the bunny to death and i feel like that's important to know because some people will not see a movie if animals are appear to be tortured and mistreated in it and even though everybody in this movie is pretty much tortured and mistreated at some point nobody actually ever kills a bunny rest assured that's true the bunny is just briefly made uncomfortable but it seems to survive and uh after its initial embarrassment hops off and goes somewhere pleasant but yeah, the rabbits, I think, are they're actually something that I, I love about this movie. This movie's so full of weird touches like that, like the duck race that the movie begins with, which essentially exists just to show us what a debauched and kind of boring world these these courtiers live in, that they have nothing to do but bet on on duck races. And uh, and the rabbits, they serve a similar function in the sense that they kind of illustrate the queen's loneliness and her and how sort of spoiled she is. But they also, of course, illustrate this tragic part of her life that happened long before the movie begins where she tried to have children 17 times and it never worked. And so there's definitely an opening onto something more serious and less kind of brittle and uh, and comedic once we meet the queen and her rabbits and learn what they mean to her. And then you remember in a different way as well that early scene you talked about where Sir Churchill refuses to have any truck with the rabbits and says, I believe her line is, love has its limits, right? That she's saying, I love you, queen, but I'm not going to deal with these this room full of bunnies. And uh, and that's a place that Emma Stone is willing to go with the queen, which brings them to this point of greater intimacy. And that does seem to be a theme that keeps coming up with sort of the contrast between the two of their relationships, where Emma Stone will be willing to indulge the queen's impulses in ways that Rachel Weisz will not. And I'm sorry, these character has, characters have names, but I'm just going full actress, where uh, Rachel will deny hot chocolate to Queen Anne because it's bad for her, and Emma will urge her to sink into a mud bath and drown because if it feels good, do it. And so there is that sort of contrast between what what do you want versus what's good for you and what does love really mean? And like and with the rabbits, initially you think, well, anyone who is mean to this poor woman who's replaced all of her dead children with rabbits, you know, have a little sympathy for the rabbits. But by the end, when you when those rabbits come back, you begin to sense that maybe Sarah Churchill had a point. 
Yeah, well, I guess there's a sense, I think it's hinted in the last scene, which is something that would naturally happen, that the rabbits are breeding, right? She has 17 rabbits to represent the children, but you see this increasing pack of rabbits at the end and this like almost sickening profusion of rabbits. And I think at that point, they're a symbol for something else besides the children, right? They become, I don't know if they kind of represent the the vices that are multiplying within the Emma Stone character or the responsibilities and burdens that have devolved upon her shoulders once she gets Rachel Vice out of there. But yeah, the well, bunnies by the end just seem like this oppressive evil sort of. No, absolutely. I feel like it's sort of the things that you surround yourself with instead of happiness because like they were always there as a surrogate. And now you have Emma Stone, who's sort of the ultimate surrogate for like maybe what was the love of Queen Anne's life. And uh, even if she was manipulative, but at least she did the books correctly. And like the numbers didn't jump around as Emma Stone complains, the numbers do. Um, and and if love isn't correctly keeping your uh, lady's books, I don't know what <laughs> is. Um, but I think also having recently seen The Trouble with Tribbles, that image of the multiplying rabbits was sort of unfortunately <laughs> evocative. So I'm sitting there sort of in the theater. I think everyone's filled with dawning horror, both that A, the rabbits are multiplying and this is a deep metaphor for what we're going through. But B, oh, no, this is going to be the final shot. There isn't going to be any more movie after this. We're really ending with these rabbits here. If only William Shatner had popped up out of the pile of rabbits, it would have just made the movie. (laughs) (laughs) That's what every movie needs. All right, but we haven't spoken about the next big plot development after Emma Stone comes in and kind of starts to take over the court and win the Queen's affection, which is how she gets Sarah, Rachel Weiss's character, the hell out of there. Well, let's talk about her subterfuge. Well, she poisons her tea, it, which is f- fairly d- direct as subterfuges go. And then Rachel goes off into the woods. And it's, it turns out that Emma Stone didn't intend to kill her by doing the poison in the tea. It was like a sort of a small seven-day light poison, uh, some gentle, non-murderous poison. And Rachel Weiss rides off on a horse and falls from the horse and gets stuck in a brothel temporarily and eventually makes her way back to court and now has a hideous scar. And And an eye patch, which is awesome. Oh, the eye patch was... It was like... That was some serious fashion. Rachel Weiss was making it work beautifully. Oh, as long as we're mentioning fashion, I should just throw out that I think I said this earlier, but the costumes and are fantastic in this movie. I mean, they're they're period appropriate, but they're also very designy. You know, like, did you notice they're all this kind of black and white color palette? So they almost look like chess pieces or something. There's just yeah. they're really wonderfully not just matched with the individual actors, but but matched with each other so that when you look at the whole court, it seems to be this sort of like row of dominoes or something. They're fabulous. They're by Sandy Powell, who's kind of the costume genius of our day and will no doubt get an Oscar nomination for this. No, they were gorgeous. And you're right. The chess pieces thing, that's a really cool way of putting it because they have all these sort of composed shots where you see everyone in court sort of standing there and you've got the pawns and the queens and just moving around in their square formations. And the costumes really highlight that. But so, but so yeah, Rachel so comes back, eye patch, scar, and uh, and now she's she's really out for blood with Emma Stone. No, but I want to figure out what, what happens. So, so she like poisons her, and then she comes back, and then oh, then Rachel try. That's what it is. Rachel's like, okay, I have an ultimatum for you. You need to get rid of Abigail now, and you need to make the war tax increase that I wanted you to make, and this needs to happen. Or I'm going to divulge all of our very sensual letters to the public. And this turns out to be overplaying her hand. And But then she doesn't, she can't even bring herself to do it. She burns the letters. And then they have a tearful through a door scene where 
They talk about what love really means, and does it mean indulging your significant other, or does it mean giving them chocolate and not telling them when they look like a, a badger when they look like a badger, and that's what Rachel Vice says love is. And then she gets sent away for good, and they're and exiled from to, the country. Right? I think she and her husband are exiled at the end of the movie. Yeah, ultimately because she was supposed to send her a nice letter, and it took her a long time to come up with a nice letter. But she did come up with one, and then sneaky Emma Stone got that letter and burned it. So there's a lot of burned letters in the course of this movie, and that one's a particularly sad one because they could have reconciled. And poor Olivia Coleman sits there going, "Is the mail come today?" But like with a good accent because she's a talented British actress and not like a Dickensian orphan voice that I'm doing but and the mail never comes or it, it does come but emma stone is watchful and she gets that mail and so then everyone's trapped in hell forever basically yeah and when we haven't really talked about the change that comes over the emma stone character but i mean she starts off the movie scheming but you know still basically someone that you identify with right the struggling scullery maid who's trying to find her place at court but after she gets that power and gets rid of rachel vice i mean it, it becomes almost heavy-handed how much it's driven home that power corrupts and that she's become this really not, not any different than the queen and if anything even more appetite driven and amoral than the queen is i don't know i was never really rooting for emma stone to be completely honest i'm like full team rachel vice here i'm like you guys had a working relationship and like she told you you looked like a badger when you did look like a badger and like i, I feel like movies the one number one mistake classy movies always make is trying to get me to root against rachel vice and i won't do it movies stop trying um because even if she's scheming like when she walks heartbroken down the hallway with a candle like everyone gets a beautiful like close-up when they get to like have their heart break while watching something happen and uh, I was just fully team get Sarah Churchill back into your life and get the kingdom on board and you got to keep fighting those French until she says you stop. Uh, so I was like, yeah, Emma Stone, your your character was always going to go that way from the very first moment you said, <laughs> oh, cough, cough. I was out picking the herbs to cure you, mistress, which also her accent was great. Her accent caused me no problems throughout the film. Oh, yeah. I mean, we haven't really gotten to this and this is really the most notable and, and the best thing about the movie, but all three performances are great. I wouldn't recast or change a single line reading or change anything about the way those actresses interpreted their parts. 100% of my objection to this movie has to do with the way it's framed and presented and sort of its um, its evident self-love, which is seen in things like the fisheye lens and the, the, the directorial swooping in touches all the time and the use of music, which I found a little bit um, overly obvious and manipulative. It's basically period music, like Baroque court kind of music, but it's just always blasting ironically at you to prove like, <laughs> we're at court, artificial things are happening. You know, it's a world of artifice. I get it. I get it. There's, a, there's an I get it element to this movie that I don't know if you felt as well. Like I wanted to rewatch it for our conversation because I saw it quite a while ago now. And, and I did start it and start to watch it again. And then I started to realize, like, I just don't really care about this enough to watch it a second time. That's fair. I feel like it might annoy me on a second viewing, but I'd be willing to undertake to see whether it would annoy me. I did like they had a lot of very showy elements, including like, can we talk about the naked man who is being pelted with pomegranates <laughs> now? Speaking of directorial choices that show you're at court and are sort of flashy, long sequences with no discernible purpose uh, other than. I so my friend and I left the theater and we're like maybe this happened and they were they just had a long list of things that happened at court that seemed too ridiculous to not put in a movie and then but you it turns out googling like nude man hit with pomegranates not 
immediately <laughs> doesn't go straight to the court of Queen Anne, doesn't give you the information that maybe you were seeking. I feel like that might take you down some internet pathways that you really don't want to travel down. But yeah, the naked guy being pelted with pomegranates is this very painterly and completely decontextualized moment that happens near the end that I think is just kind of analogous to the duck race. I mean, it's in a part of the movie when more, you know, morally corrupt things are happening. So, you know, now we're seeing a human be used as a toy instead of a bunch of ducks. But it really is establishing the same point, which is just that, you know, everybody at this court is constantly thinking of new refinements because they of of kind of debauchery because they have nothing else to do with their lives. And to the extent this movie's really about anything besides just the, you know, delicious triangle of meanness that those three women create, I think it's about that, which I, I honestly consider a little bit of a thin idea for, you know, a movie this elaborate to be embroidering on, which is just power corrupts and people at court are you know, bored losers. I mean, (laughs) Yorgos Lanthimos, the director, has always specialized, all of his movies so far have specialized in this kind of creation of a closed world that makes sense only in itself. Like The Lobster, I don't know if you saw The Lobster, this movie with Colin Farrell from a couple years ago, uh, in which the premise is hard to describe, but essentially it takes place in a world, a kind of fantasy world that posits that if you aren't partnered up, if you don't have, you know, some kind of life partner, then you will be turned into an animal. And uh, and so he's trying to beat the clock so that he won't be turned into a lobster. He's trying to find a woman, a partner, so he won't be turned into a lobster. So And they know in advance what animal they're going to get turned into? I mean, yeah, in the world, no, I think they choose it. I can't, I can't remember because I saw it a while ago. But in the world of the movie, it sort of all makes sense and is all this allegory for something very dark and frightening and strange. But then when you walk out, you sort of think, well, what is it an actual allegory for? I mean, that's always been my take on Lanthimos anyway. And so here we're not in a fantasy world, right? We're in a historical one, but it still seems to be one that operates according to its own bizarre hothouse rules with naked men being pelted with pomegranates. And I'm not quite sure what it all adds up to in the end. Maybe it doesn't need to add up to anything other than just kind of a raunchy court comedy. But anytime that it felt like it was, as you say, trying to take on feminist aspirations or trying to have some larger political allegorical meaning, I just felt it didn't have that that many places to go. I thought it it succeeded most when it delved into the relationships because those three central performances and the three central sort of relationships that it was sort of focusing on uh, were fascinating and how they were forced to play out in this sort of artificial environment was fascinating. And it it was – I actually sort of – my biggest problem with it was it seemed to think it was a comedy, but I thought it worked best when it was not comedic at all. Like I I laughed definitely, but it was at things like, oh, why are they breakdancing now or – just sort of moments that took me out of the movie rather than moments that like I thought word was strongest was when you were just watching all of these beautiful actresses have their hearts broken and uh, like strutting around with hideous fashion masks. And like that part of the movie was the most successful to me. And so the parts when it was like, ah, but yes, court life, as you say, I, I think were actually by trying to say more, were just sort of more slapdash and didn't say as much. Yeah. I mean, I I do. I will say that this movie is unusual. It is certainly not like anything else you will see. It's not in any way a Merchant Ivory-esque stayed period costume drama. So, you know, if you go with your grandmother on Christmas Day expecting it to be that, she will be possibly horrified by the the language and the subject matter. And so it is at least original. And uh, some people are loving it. I mean, I have to say, to be to be fair to people still trying to decide, I don't know if you would listen to all of this and still not know whether you want to see it or not, but lots of people are walking out of this movie swooning. So, you know, if you really love snappy, raunchy dialogue in, in 18th century English courts, you should by all means go. Yeah, absolutely. And even if you don't love those things, if you just want to not see like a festive movie, it, 
and just the acting. Go and watch the acting. Yeah. And I think also that Olivia Coleman is probably going to be a big feature in the awards conversation. It's that kind of performance, because as you say, it has tragic elements and comic elements. It has physical transformation, which Oscar voters always love. If you if you look at Olivia Coleman now, she's kind of like this long, rangy, incredibly sharp featured, you know, kind of glamour cat. And uh, and the, the character that she plays as this queen is this really sort of blurry, out of it woman who seems very kind of out of touch with her own court and with her own body. Body, really yeah no there's this whole sequence where she's sadly eating an enormous cake and then like a lot of people are chundering constantly in this movie coming to think of it <laughs> I feel like there's a, yeah, a lot of technicolor yawning going on i feel like sometimes the euphemism is worse than the actual thing that's what i'm discovering from <laughs> my contribution today but describe um, the cake the cake scene is really one that stuck with me afterwards because i can't stand vomiting in films and it was a particularly gross instance of it yeah, no, she's eating just enormous slice. Well, she has a, a demure slice of this cake, but she's eating too much of it. And then she vomits into a vase and continues eating the cake. And it's sort of, it's it's very that thing where you leave a dog in a house by itself and it eats the whole bag of food. And some people are like that if left to their own devices. And other people are cat people where they like have schedules and organize themselves. And as much more of a dog person who would like sort of run amok and doesn't understand why there isn't any cereal in the house after she's eaten all the cereal. I, I did sympathize for when you lose your Rachel Weiss in a situation like that, of course you're going to eat an entire cake and be confused <laughs> why you can't have the whole cake and also eat it simultaneously. Oh yeah. my God, is that what the expression means? <laughs> you finally understand. Yeah, I mean, that scene to me was just making the same point that had made, been made countless times with the pomegranate guy, with the ducks. I mean, it's just showing the kind of gross, appetitive world of court where there's nothing to do but consume. Um, but Olivia Coleman's so good that that scene just still sticks with me as almost the image that I most carried away from the movie, throwing up blue cake into a vase and then chomping down some more. Yeah, no, because you can see her like and that bite of cake afterwards. She's like, this isn't a, a, this is an ill-advised follow up bite of cake, but I'm going to do it because I'm the <laughs> queen and she is the queen. She can do it. But the point is, should she be doing it? And so I don't know. I, I guess I'm just fully in the tank for Sarah Churchill. And I think she should have brought her back to court. And I was very sad when she did not because scheming Emma Stone had stood in their way, which is to say that I, I definitely enjoyed this movie. So when the favorite two comes out and Rachel Weisz comes back for her revenge, you have to come back and talk to me again. Oh, yeah. No, Sarah Churchill, ride or die. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Alexandra. I really do hope you'll come back. Whether or not there's a favorite two, I would love to spoil another movie with you sometime soon. Well, thank you for having me. It was great fun. Thank you for listening to this Slate Spoiler Special. If you have any ideas for future movies or TV shows you would like us to spoil, you can drop us a line at spoilers at slate.com. You can also subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer today was Danielle Hewitt. For Alexandra Petri, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. 